Fellas, what's going on? I hope you are well. And I mean that in the most authentic way. I hope you are well. I hope you are thriving. And even if you're not, I hope that there's something inside of you that knows that this is temporary, that that where you're at, what you're feeling is not you, is not forever. I hope that by the end of this show that you can feel something. I don't know what that is. I don't know what it needs to be, but that you are feeling and that you're okay feeling whatever it is that you're feeling because it's exactly what you need to be feeling in this moment to become the man and evolve into the man that you need to be. And I, frankly, I don't even know where this is coming from because this maybe it's supposed to fit with today's conversation. And that's with Jay Lauren Norris. And he's a leadership and strategic coach. And he helps you know executives to be able to become their best. He helps leaders to kind of grow. But this conversation, it was so refreshing because so many people look at traditions and look at at the ways that things were and they cast it all as bad right this idea of masculinity or this you know the previous generations they want to throw out everything from the previous generation and I, and I don't know that that's healthy and Jay today he brings just an amazing perspective that I think is so refreshing and you may not agree with every single thing that Jay says you probably won't I don't know that I did but I love that we were able to have the conversation and we were able to talk and have a discussion that hopefully can allow both of us to evolve. And my goal is that by the end of today that you have evolved in some sort of way as well. And so with that being said, I want to thank you as always for being a part of the tribe. I'm so humbled and honored by the response that this show has gotten. And I cannot state that enough that I'm so grateful that you'd spend the time with us today. Because this is Jay Lauren Norris. Welcome to the Modern Masculinity Podcast, where we delve into the depths of what it means to be a man in today's world, and we explore the real-life challenges and triumphs that you and I face every single day. My name is Hector Santi Esteban, and I come with no answers, only questions for some of the most wise, insightful, and grounded men that I know. So get settled in. You're listening to Modern Masculinity. Jay. Welcome to the Modern Masculinity Podcast, man. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Hector. I appreciate it. It's become one of my favorite parts of these interviews is the first question, and that is because we could talk about all of the amazing accolades that you have and all of the great things and the ways that you're helping people and you're coaching people and you're helping people figure out their life, if you will. It is grand and it is amazing, but what's something that's present for you? What are you challenged with? What are you struggling with right now in terms of being a man, a husband, a dad, an entrepreneur, any of those things? Is there anything that's present for you right now? Well, I can tell you, there's kind of a double tension. We've been leasing the same house for almost five years now. And we recently got notification that the owner of the house wants to take advantage of this crazy real estate market and sell it like right now while the market's still hot. And he gave us basically 60 days to figure out what we're going to do. Well, it's not in our budget to buy it where it's at. So especially with the crazy increase in prices that the neighborhood we're in has gone up almost $100,000 just in the last 18 months. So that leaves us a dilemma of moving. Now, part of the reason that that moving is a dilemma, my wife and I are well into our careers. We're well established. I'm self-employed. She has had the same job 10 years now. So you know, we can do pretty much what we want to. However, comma, I have two sons who are between 25 and 30 years old, and we're living in a season of American society that is unlike when I grew up 
When I was 18, I went off to college. Before I finished my college degree, I joined the military. I spent the next four and a half years going around the world. Before I was 25 years old, I was already out of the military and married and having kids. Both of my boys still live at home. Now they've gone out on their own and realized that in today's economy, an $1,800 apartment is barely worth living in. And so they're both back at home. Well, my wife and I are like, hey, we could buy a nice little cabin on the lake and just chill for the next 25 years and be perfectly happy with that. But every consideration for property has to say, well, what about the project cars? And what about the four motorcycles that we own? And what about the boys and where the boys going to go? And if we don't buy a house big enough, what do we do with them? I would have never thought at this point in my life, I would be asking myself the question, what about my 20-something boys? Because I thought I raised them strong enough with a work ethic to get out there and take on the world on their own. But here we are. So that's my struggle. At the one hand, I want to kick them out and go, you're a grown man, dude, handle this. On the other hand, I realize one of them works 50 hours a week as an assistant store manager and still isn't pulling down 30 grand a year. And that's a tough economy to live in when you realize that you can do your very best and work hard in a solid job that years ago would have been a laudable job at 24 years old. At the day, you just can't cut it in the society and the economy we live in. That's a hard place to be. How do you help him navigate? Because I'd imagine that a lot of the listeners listening to the show are where your sons are at, maybe one or two steps ahead, maybe, but they're still in that different world. How do you coach him or help him to navigate? Because you're totally right. Those both realities, get out and handle it, but then it's different. If you are having those conversations, what are those like, or what would you wish that you could convey to someone in that spot? You know, it's really ironic because my older son is 25 years old. He'll be 26 this summer, has had several different jobs. The one he's in now, he's been in for about nine months. He's been promoted four times in that job. He's actually making decent money, over $20 an hour. So not bad money at all, but still living at home and paying a car payment and paying for insurance and paying for his cell phone. I didn't have any of those bills. When I was that age, liability insurance is all that was required. A car payment was 120 bucks a month if you had a really nice car. He pays over $500 a month for a car. So just the cost of living has gone up so drastically that what we would consider to be a workable wage is entirely different. One of the things that I find to be true, though, and I even talked about this on my own podcast this morning, is that the challenge that we have sometimes is realizing that leadership, let me superimpose leadership with the word success, it's a mind game. It really is a mind game. My son recently joined, the older one, joined an MLM, direct marketing, to raise some extra money on the side of his job and hoping to grow a little bit. Well, he comes home after about the fourth meeting. He's like, Dad, I got this reading list of books. I need to read these books. They're supposed to make me better at what I do. And I said, well, what are they? And so he pulls his list out and there's like 17 books on the list. And I'm like, it's right there. I have that book. I've read it. You may have a hard time reading it because I've written notes all over it. I've had that one for about 20 years. But they're the same kind of books that I built my leadership business around. The same kind of stuff that I've been studying since I've been a John Maxwell coach, since I started coaching Dale Carnegie. And so to see him at 25 years old, diving in into the kind of stuff that I dove into in my 20s, but then again in my 30s and 40s, and I built my life around, it's encouraging. It's challenging to realize as a good father, I should have dug into that stuff with him at 5, 10, 15 years old, because leadership success really is a mind game. And if you don't get your mind right around it, I mean, think of all the greatest books, Think and Grow Rich, duh. How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, duh. If you listen to somebody like Grant Cardone as a billionaire, he'll tell you the delay in my life was when I didn't realize that I needed to get known 
And I had to be the kind of person people want to do business with. Well, that's all the inner game. That's all about your mind. It's all about who you are. It's about not letting people beat you down with their impression and their opinion of you. My advice to my boys, even right now, is you can continue to stay in the job that you're at and stay in your comfort zone, or you can push yourself and get beyond that. Do something that's uncomfortable. Do something that's unrealistic even. Take a risk. Do something completely crazy. And right now, you've got a golden umbrella, if you will, in that you still have my house. I don't know how much longer that's going to be true. The minute you have a family, you have kids, it's time to move on. That's going to be a different thing. But right now, you have the safety of knowing you have a place to lay your head at night, and you still have the opportunity to take risks, to grow, and to do something different. Yeah, I'm realizing that I'm not going to have a question here because I already know there's no question here. But my brother is also 25 and he lives at home. I was fortunate enough to read Dale Carnegie and Grant Cardone and Napoleon Hill. But it was only because I was fortunate enough to find a sales job. And I was fortunate enough to realize that I was not good at said sales job and wanted to get better at it because my parents, thankfully, they let me stay at home as long as I needed, but they cut me off from anything. If you want to go have fun, if you want to have a girlfriend, you know, if you want to do all these things, you got to go figure it out. And so the books were really a way to keep hanging out and partying with friends, I guess. But maybe there is a question here. And, I, and I'm wondering if that catalyst is not present in the men that are coming out right now, if that catalyst is not there, right? You know, you were coming up in a different time, you joined the service, there was all these moments that forced you into growth. I'm wondering if that's not happening for these young men, or if we as fathers and father figures need to create these situations where men are thrown into the fire, if you will. Well, I think there's a crucible moment is a very important thing. I think there's another reality, though, and that is Gary Vee said it on a conference the other day. He said, there are people out there who are thinking, I can't hire these young Gen Zs because they just don't want to work. He said, no, it's not that they don't want to work. It's that they don't want to work for you. And the reason they don't want to work for you is because you're offering them $62,000 a year and a week's paid vacation. And you're thinking you're some kind of superhero in their life. And the reality is their next door neighbor is the same age with no college degree, and they're making eighty-five dollars to $90,000 a year selling stuff on Amazon and never leaving the house. They play video games five or six hours a day. They sell stuff on Amazon three or four hours a day. They make eighty grand a year. Why in the world would they come to work for you? That is a really perplexing question because there are multiple things. Just like you said, you took on a sales job and you were forced to learn and grow and become a better you when you realize that the job that you've taken on demands more of you. If you can generate 80K and never leave the house, it demands nothing of you. You don't even have to talk to people except the ones you're screaming at on your video game. I mean, you can literally sit there in your pajamas, your underwear hooked up with a Mountain Dew IV and just stare at the screen all day. And nobody knows and nobody cares what kind of person you really are. Get out there in the workforce one day. It takes about two weeks of being a jerk at the Starbucks counter before you run headlong into, I need to be a better person. And I think the work ethic, the growth mentality, the change of attitude that comes, the minute you realize there is a real world out there, it's demanding. It's very demanding. But we've got TikTok superstars who've never done anything other than, I don't know, an OnlyFans page, driving Lamborghinis. And they're thinking, why should I conform to the ways that the world has modeled over the last five decades? Why should I buy a house that's going to maybe increase in value when I could flip the same house four times instead? 
I think of the car dealers who go out and buy a $10,000 car. They sell it for $2,500 down, knowing that the guy doesn't have the credit to pay for it. Three months later, they repossess it. What do they do? They sell it for $2,500 down. They collect a couple of payments. In the end, they made forty grand off a $10,000 car because they know how the game is played. Well, society is shifting in that way. There's a lot of cultural demonization, if you will, of what a man used to be, what a man is meant to be a father figure who's stalwart and shows up every day and goes to work and does the job. I recently listened to Elena Cardone talk about her husband, Grant, and she said, I'll never forget from the first time that I actually agreed to have a conversation with him. He said, everybody in my life, everybody who gets in my life gets better. If you spend time with me, I'll make you better and I'll never let you down. And she recounted how in 2008, they were nearly broke and nearly lost everything. And she said, I saw that man panic for the first time in my life. And I called him on it. I said, look, we're not going to die because you promised me that my life would only get better with you. So get your butt in your office and figure out a solution until we can get past this together. That's a picture of masculinity. When she said, you know, a lot of my friends, I felt like we're saying, why would you surrender your womanhood, your feminism to this man to take care of you? And she said, I found out over almost 20 years of marriage, he's the one thing I can count on no matter what. He never lets me down. Even if he has to figure out a way, he's the guy out there busting it. He's the guy out there doing the hard work. He's the guy out there bringing home the bread so I can take care of the family. And my role is to take care of the family so he can do that, not to meet him at the door with drama. And that is such a powerful thing. But young men today, they're slow to get into relationships. They drag out the relationships. They look for jobs where they can hide behind their computer screen. They're not out there doing that gritty hard work. I mean, watch Yellowstone for 15 minutes and most young men today be like, no, I'm not doing that. It's a whole different kind of world that we live in. It's interesting that you bring that up. I've never connected those dots in the sense that on social media and YouTube and TikTok and all these places, you get a glimpse of the new dating world that your sons and my brother and these people are in. I'm fortunate to be married and have kids. I don't have any intention of getting back into that world. But one of the things that seems to come up is that men are upset at the fact that women don't want to be at home and don't want to be with the kids anymore and don't want to have maybe, for lack of a terrible term, more of a traditional role. But on the other side of that coin, they're also not providing the same kind of masculinity, whatever, the same kind of support and providership. And they're not doing their part in the same way that they're calling out women for not wanting to do their part. Yeah, I was just watching a YouTube short, literally just killing time as we were about to jump on. And guy and a girl on a podcast together, she's got a list of questions for him. She said, well, what if I was on holiday five times a year? He said, you'd be single. She's like, what if you were dating me and I was on holiday five times a year? He said, you'd be single. I wouldn't be dating you if you were going on holiday that often and not working. She's like, oh, well, he said, well, are you taking me with you? Am I going with you? And she's like, well, no, it'd just be me on holiday. He's like, yeah, you'd be single. And so she starts going through a whole list of things and she's just blown away. And she said, what if I don't cook? He said, well, you'd definitely be single. She said, well, do you cook? He said, that's irrelevant. She said, but do you cook? He said, it doesn't matter. She said, well, why do you care if I cook? He said, well, that's your role. You make the sandwiches. I fight off the bad guys. I mean, unless you can fight, then I'll learn to cook. And she was just flabbergasted. And he's like, I'm not playing. I'm serious. There are things that I can do that you cannot do. And there are things that you can do that I cannot do. And if we don't stay in those roles, at least to some extent, there's no way it's going to work. That seems like such a duh kind of an answer. Well, that very next YouTube short is a lady saying, yeah, we named our child Sparrow. And while we know they were born with genitals, we never discussed with them whether they were male or female. And now they're in middle school. 
Right. Holy cow. Right. Holy cow. Right. Right. This poor kid. Talk about a target for bullying. Good grief. But at the same time, we try not to offend anyone by giving them the space to be who they want to be. And sometimes the role of a parent is to say, look, I'm going to give you all the space you want to be. But the minute your bicycle heads for the end of the driveway and there's a car coming, if I have to knock you off that bicycle with a football, I will do so. I have done so. You can ask my youngest son at my mother's house. He was about five. And I kept saying, do not ride it in the street. Ride the bicycle in the driveway. Keep it in the driveway. I was playing catch with somebody else in the street. I look up. He's headed right for the street. There's a car coming behind the other guy I'm playing catch with. And I nailed the front tire of that bicycle. It spun around twice and he went flat on his face. But he was not in the street. And he looked at me. He's like, dad. I'm like, it was the football or the car. You choose. If we as parents aren't willing to put our foot down and go, there's a line and you don't cross that line because the consequences are much worse than your feelings, I love you enough to hurt your feelings. I love you enough to humiliate you in public. I love you enough to make your life miserable for the next six weeks, six months, six years, because I know what the long-term consequences of those bad choices are. And I will interfere in them. And I will interrupt them. And I feel like that's my job. We're seeing the absence of that. We're seeing the absence of structure. And you talked about crucible moments. And I'm curious how you've seen this play out for yourself or even in your son's. You use that word. And I like that because I think it was my sixth grade teacher. She forced me to read the crucible. So I always remember that word. But I also love what it is. And also so many of us over the last several years are going through our own crucible. But do you have crucible moments in your life? Do you look back on that? I mean, is that something that you think about or talk about with your clients or your boys at all, if often? My primary role as a leadership coach is in the field of communication. And a lot of people think that means all I do is prepare public speakers. I do. But what it doesn't mean is that I write speeches. What it does mean is that I prepare people to be worthy of taking the mic. And that's a whole different ballgame. There's a great show that my wife and I have been watching in the evenings. I think it's on ABC, something like that. It's on one of the broadcast channels. And it's about special forces training for celebrities. And so there's a big basketball star and a former Amendola is one of the contestants and Anthony Scaramucci, who is a former political guy, some real big names, if you will. But they're in a crucible of their own character. They're asked to do some physically demanding things, walk on tight ropes and rappel off of high cliffs and things that scare the bejeebers out of the average person to begin with. I see them in their celebrity status and knowing that they've lived so much of their life in the spotlight and everybody going, oh, they're a hero, until you ask them to do something outside their wheelhouse. The challenge for a lot of young people today is they have no idea what their wheelhouse is. They've played in the comfort zone. They've never had their feelings hurt. They didn't have the kind of coach that I had. Recently here in the DFW, Mark, there's actually a coach who has lost his job and is facing some kind of legal repercussions because he worked his football team hard enough for them to throw up. And we called that two-a-days. <laughs> well, that was standard. That was when we got to stop. <laughs> if you didn't have the technicolored yawn, you weren't trying hard enough. But today, that lands the coach in a potential legal situation. If you think we've softened our young people, especially young men, they don't know what a crucible is. I remember some of the very small crucible moments in my life. I was raised the only son of a single mom. And the day that I heard my stepdad was gone, there was a great tension because I literally prayed for him to die. He was a very physically abusive guy. But when he was gone, I realized what that meant for manhood 
for learning to ride a motorcycle, for learning to work on cars, for learning to do the things that every young boy wants to do. Although I didn't like him much, I was about nine, eight or nine years old when he handed me a five pound sledgehammer and he said, you see that building over there? I said, yeah. He said, I don't want it there anymore. And I literally spent an entire summer shattering cinder blocks that were built onto a foundation into a shed so that he could tear it down and build a new shed. I spent my summer, $1 a brick, beating these concrete blocks off of there. It wasn't a whole lot of money at the end of the summer, except it was in the 1970s and I was nine years old. So it actually was a lot of money to me. And it was hard work in the hot sun. I remember sitting on the top of that brick wall, waiting for his old 57 Apache truck to pull up there and evaluate how much progress I'd made. Sitting on that wall and my mom would bring me a bologna sandwich and Frito potato chips and a hot Coca-Cola. And those kind of moments, they don't slip past you. You never forget those kind of moments. You realize that the blisters on your hand are representative of something that you've done above and beyond. Today, they get brownie buttons because they show up on the soccer field, whether the team wins or loses. You just show up, stand on the sidelines, cheer loud enough, everybody gets a trophy. That's a problem. That sense of accomplishment, that sense of risk, that sense of daring, it doesn't look the same. Young people today live in a virtual world that virtually is harmless, but emotionally it's destructive. Think of the way that you grew up, the way that I grew up, and the number of suicides that were around us. They were minuscule by comparison to what they are today. So what gives? An entire generation of people who are terrified of their own shadow sometimes, they can't deal with life because they've all been told it's going to be awesome, it's going to be wonderful, it's going to be great, and everybody loves you. It's just not true. And so the crucibles of life that formed me into who I am, I remember the first day of Fire Academy. Everybody's standing around, we have no idea what's next. We're told to put on our entire gear, put on our air packs, buckle up completely, put our mask on, climb a ladder. And we're all looking at the ladder going, that ladder? Because there's a little A-frame ladder there. And he says, no, that ladder. It's a 50-foot straight ladder tied off to the ceiling at the top of a catwalk. Our job is to climb all the way up to the top so that we could step onto the catwalk. But before we get on the catwalk, let go of the ladder with our hands and lean back as far as we can go. There were grown men in that crowd with me that day crying like babies. There was one young lady in our troop that was becoming a firefighter with us. I got called out to go first. I climbed all the way to the top, I let go, and I laid back until my tank hit the ladder. Everybody else's eyes were about this big. And when I came back down, our drill instructor said, well, Norris, you set the bar really high. I've never seen anybody actually touch the ladder with their air pack. Nobody else in the group did. Some of them never even let go of the ladder. Why? Because I'd been put in that place so many times in my life as the only son of a single mom that if I didn't take the risk, It didn't happen. If I didn't go get a job at 13, we didn't have the income. If I didn't learn how to drive a car, a hay truck, do the work at 14 and 15 years old before I even had a driver's license, it simply didn't happen. It was on me. I was the only man in the house and I had to figure it out. That changes the game. My boys are grown men today. They make good, solid decisions. They've both been driving on the ice this weekend because their jobs demanded it of them. And everybody else is going, tell them to stay home. I'm like, I wouldn't have. I won't now. You can't make me stay home because of a little ice. Give me a break. I learned to drive a fire truck on the ice. I think I can do this. But if we don't dare them to get out there, if we don't give them the risk, if they're not allowed to face the risk, they'll never learn how to handle it. Those are the crucibles. They don't have to be the basic training, the special forces training. They don't have to be the things that literally scare you to death. But they have to be the risks that you take 
when nobody else is willing to take the risk. In sales, you took that risk. If you worked any time at all in straight commission sales, you took that risk because you showed up working eight hours a day knowing you may or may not come home with a paycheck. That is a hard place to be, especially if you're trying to raise a family or just pay your basic bills. I could show up to work five days in a row on straight commission and still not have a car payment. That's a problem. That's a crucible, though. It demands character of you. This has already been a fantastic conversation. And some of the dads group I'm in, we'd call this bonus time because we've already gotten everything we needed. We're ready to go. But there's a few things that I want to ask you about. And that is, what can we do, right? I have a four-year-old and I can come in and look at the mess that he's made and the way he's acting. And if I come in with a judgmental perspective, there's no hope for anybody. It's just all hell breaks loose. Everyone's upset. Everyone's mad at everybody. But if I'm able to come in with some compassion and understanding, even though I don't agree, or maybe I don't understand. There's some chance of us getting through it. There's some chance of growth. And so I'm wondering how we might move through this. And I know a lot of your work is about writing your own story. And we're going to get into that and hear your thoughts on that right after this quick break. Hey guys, thanks for listening today. Today's episode is brought to you by Amplify Media, and we are a group of genius makers whose job is to help you get your mission, your message out there. If you have some impact, some effect that you want to have on the world, but are just too busy or don't have the time to figure out how to do it, we can help. Go to amplifymedia.com and you can find out all the details on how we can do that. Check the show notes for links, and let's get back to the episode. Jay, we haven't talked a lot about your work and specifically how you coach people, but I thought that was one of the biggest things that would be valuable is helping people to understand their story. And if you look at men, we're writing the story for ourselves without even realizing it. You know, we're this, we're that, we're short, we're fat, we're all these things that kind of fill up our head and end up creating the story of our life almost unconsciously. So I'd love to know from the perspective of how you work with people and kind of help people through that, how might a guy who's finding themselves in this place, maybe they don't have that fortitude or they don't have that resilience or they haven't been through those crucibles quite yet. What can they do to start rewriting that story in a way that might move them a little bit forward? So I want to answer that question, but I really want to address something you mentioned just before the break. You talk about raising a four-year-old. Having been the only son of a single mom, the one thing that I drastically missed and didn't know it until I was in my 20s was the character building assertion of a man in my life with good foundation. I read a book called Wild at Heart by John Eldridge, another one called Bringing Up Boys by Dr. James Dobson, and Becoming a Person of Influence by John Maxwell. I read those three books the same year that I turned 20 while I was in the Air Force. As I was reading those books, there were a couple of things that I realized, and one of them was that nobody had ever set the boundaries for me. I mean, I was 13 years old. I had my own keys to the house, my own keys to the van. I had no curfew. I was in middle school, staying up till two or three o'clock in the morning before going to school the next day. I would drive myself and park the family car down the street at the local restaurant and walk to school because I couldn't park the car at school, obviously. (laughs) But I had a different way of looking at the world. My expectations of me and everybody else was completely different. And I realized later on that that lack of boundaries created some serious issues in my life. I heard a guy by the name of Josh McDowell, big football and basketball player, has a couple of sons, and he talked about a day that he came home from a trip. He'd been out speaking, and as he's coming in, he stops in the laundry room, and he's unloading all of his dirty laundry out of his suitcase, and he hears through the laundry room door his wife having an argument with his son, who's like 6'6", big guy. 
And his wife says, boy, you need to go clean your room before you go down the street to play games. And his son goes, I'll clean it when I get back. She said, I don't think you understand what I said. You need to go clean your room before you go play basketball. And he said, beat and finish the word. And he said, I'll clean it when I get back. Before the rest of the words were out of his mouth, dad came through the laundry room door, drug him out to the front yard and looked the man in the eye. And he said, look, if you think you're man enough, say it again. But before you open your mouth, let me tell you, no man on earth talks to my wife like that. And she was my wife long before she was your mother. Ground rules, core values, well-established, impenetrable. My oldest son is now close to six foot five. If he walked behind me right now, he's head and shoulders taller than I am. When he was about six, he screamed no at his mother when she was trying to put him in bed. I got down on his level and we had a heart-to-heart conversation and never touched him, never put a hand on him, but I made it very clear to him, nobody talks to my wife like that. To this day, I would be frightened for anyone who talked to my wife in the presence of my sons. My two boys are 6'1", 275, and almost 6'5", 220 pounds. Mom's all of 5'6", and about 130 pounds. But if you crossed her in their presence, it would not be a good thing. They are physical, they are capable, and they love their mother. That I didn't have. Now, I can tell you, too, I was sitting in my recliner one night, and I heard this thump that sounded like a sonic boom. And even though we live close to the airport, most of them are jumbo jets, not anything to make a sonic boom. And I thought that was the strangest thing I've ever heard. A couple of minutes goes by, it happens again. I jump out of my chair. I'm going around the house. I'm looking, trying to figure out what is this noise that doesn't come again. So I go back to my recliner and then I hear it a third time and I get up and I sneak around the corner to the boy's bedroom. Now my boys at the time were about four and six and I quietly open the door and then I flip the light on really fast to catch them in the action. And here's what I find. My older son and his tidy whitey sitting in the middle of the floor, laughing so hard he's about to wet himself. My younger son in nothing but a diaper and a football helmet on the top bunk of the bed. And he looks at me and he goes, hey, dad, watch this. And slam, the bunk bed slams against the wall and the kid launches himself like the starting blocks across the room. And I said, stop doing that. You're going to hit your head on the ceiling fan. As he falls to the floor, he looks at me, he goes, that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, sometimes we do things on purpose, but without the intentionality of knowing what the consequences are going to be. And you know what? As much as I was hate to have to replace the ceiling fan and the light globes, that's a learning experience worth living through. And although it was a dumb idea, there's really nothing other than being a boy and taking a risk and diving in to come from that event. So I can scream at him, I can yell at him, I can discipline him, I could spank him or put him in timeout or whatever it is that you choose to do to discipline your children. But in the end of the game, it's not really going to make a whole lot of difference. The last thing I want to do is make him averse to risk or to train him that just doing something that might hurt you is a bad idea because that's not the kind of young men I want to raise. Now I can tell you this, if they're playing football in the house and I tell them, stop playing football in the house before you break the TV. Stop throwing the football in the house before you break something. Take it outside. Stop throwing the football. When the football flies across the room and hits the TV and knocks it off the wall and it falls to the floor and shatters, many parents would respond to that with the type of ire, the level of frustration and anger that comes with replacing a flat screen television. I wouldn't. I would respond with the type of anger necessary to break the back of disobedience. Because it's the disregard for the rules, it's the disobedience that leads to that kind of behavior. 
If they throw the football in the house the first time and nobody said, stop doing that, and it breaks the TV, how do I react? Well, you're going to be mowing a whole lot of grass to pay for that television. But what is the point of getting angry? On the other hand, if that disobedience simply leads to a constant rebellion, which leads to speeding tickets, to drinking and driving, to children out of wedlock, to all kinds of abusive situations, the only end game there, that lack of obedience and respect for authority, is called prison. It's called riots in the streets. How many times during the George Floyd riots did we see young black women stand up and go, stop doing this to our neighborhood. What is wrong with you? This is the place you live in. Take that nonsense somewhere else. Let me translate. Throw the football outside. The consequences of your behavior are too destructive to be contained here. Get out of here with that. That's exactly what the woman in Manhattan said when she stood on the street corner. She was broadcast all over the world. Every news platform picked her up when she said, this is our neighborhood. We didn't do this. Stop destroying our home. That doesn't seem like a complicated thing, but it all starts and ends with a father who's willing to put up really strong fences. Oh, they may be way out at the very edge of the property. You can act a fool within our space all you want to, but when you cross the line, You're going to have to work really hard to cross that line, and the price to pay is going to be high. I think when you're raising young people, that's absolutely imperative. The earlier that starts, the better. The stronger those core values are, the more clear they are, the better. The more definitive the punishment for the consequences, the better. If I say you break the television, you're going to have to pay for it out of your own pocket. That's an abstract thought. If I say, if you throw that football in the house one more time, your disobedience is going to lead to five squats with a paddle. That's a whole different ball game. The whole game has changed. That's the kind of discipline I believe our young people need today, and many of them have grown up without. It's the reason we see fistfights between teachers and students in the public school. You got old school guys like me who are saying, I can't believe you just talked to me like that. And 14-year-olds who are saying, I'm a grown man. I'll talk to you however I want to and jump off in a fistfight with you too. That's a problem. And it's a problem that starts with not having discipline in the home at a young age to realize there will be consequences for bad choices. That's my two cents on that. (laughs) Well, it's great. And I'm sitting here, us millennials are in this interesting spot because we grew up in a more traditional kind of environment but now we are parenting and raising kids in this new environment. The big thing that comes out of it is the no spanking because all the trauma and all the things, and it's like, okay, maybe there's something there. But I think that trauma only happens when you don't have the skills to properly work through it or to give that perspective. The trauma only happens because there's no way to process it correctly. It's not that we don't need the structure or we don't need anger sometimes or whatever it is to convey that urgency, but that also should be coupled with some ability to understand. I think my three-year-old, I have a three-year-old daughter too, and she's in this place where I hear some of the things that she says and she twists stuff so like, that is not what happened. Beautiful. Like that, I was standing here watching, like that is not, but in her head, I imagine that That's what happened in our head. And the same kind of thing happens for 15-year-olds. They're in their own perspective. Even though we're all on the outside seeing perhaps something different, they don't have the skills, the self-awareness to cope and work through that. So yeah, I think there's absolute value to the structure that can provide. Because men, it seems in a lot of the conversations that we're having, a lot of their role is to provide a container, to create space and structure for this feminine, fluid 
energy that is much more chaotic at some time because that's what it does. That's how it creates. I've heard that feminine energy is like water, very fluid and it's all over the place. And masculine energy is like the cup that provides the structure for which that water to flow. And it seems like that structure is born when we're young. Yeah. I say all the time, boying is a verb. B-O-Y-I-N-G, boying is a verb. It's what they do. I raised two sons and two daughters. My daughters are 27 and 34. And my girls, ironically, have no daughters. Between them, they have seven sons. <laughs> and so they've Bless their got, souls. Bless <laughs> their souls. They've kind of got the world figured out in that aspect. What's really ironic is one of them used to have a big piece of wall art that actually said, boy, it's noise with dirt on it. And I thought that's quintessentially boyhood. That's boyism. That's boying. It's what they do. If I see little boys near a ladder, I expect one of two things. They're going to hang from the bottom of it for as long as they can and then fall on the ground. Or they're going to climb up it and jump off of whatever it's leaned against. That's what little boys do. Little girls don't do that. I know I raised two of them. They will discuss with you the color of the ladder, the height of the ladder, the angle of the ladder, why it's there, what's its purpose. They will not climb it unless they're just a little different in their wiring. It's not their thing. They don't care. But they do think in an entirely different way. One of the guys that I work with that we've been doing business together a little over 20 years recently had an encounter with a female client and she just tore him up. When he was done, he gave her 100% refund. It was like $7,000. He gave all the money back to her. And I said, why did you do that? And he said, well, because she said this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And I looked at her and I said, buddy, <laughs> yeah, she's a female. He said, well, but she's the client. I said, yeah, but she wasn't right. She was playing the drama role, the little automatic tears, the emotional overwhelm, the disastrous weeping and crying and heaving. That's an on and off switch. I know because my girls did it <laughs> the whole time I was reading. Then the biggest meltdown we ever had was over a brand of yoga pants. She swore that this particular brand of yoga pants had to be what we bought for her job. She lost it in the Nike store, crying, heaving, weeping on the floor, and people looking at us like, Dad, just buy her the pants for heaven's sake. And I'm like, reality is she's not going to keep the job three months. I'm going to spend $100 on one pair of yoga pants, and she's not going to keep the job three months. It wasn't even three weeks. It wasn't even three weeks. And I didn't buy those yoga pants. I made her buy them. But the reality of how little girls think and how little boys think is so drastically different. But the boundaries were the same. To set the boundaries and say, within this space, you can act a fool all you want to. You're going to do it differently than your brother. Chances are the two boys are going to do it differently. And they're probably going to butt heads at some point. And when my boys started acting up, even to this day, they get into their little tiffs of whatever it is they're arguing about. But I still watch them come to each other's aid when one is in trouble. And that's both fascinating and endearing for me to see them because I didn't have a brother to see them say, I'm going to kick your butt. And then five minutes later, if you go after one of them, you're going after the other. You have a brother. You know how this works. You know, I'll kick your butt. But anybody else says anything, it's you and me against the world. And together, they'll take on the world. I can also tell you, though, that the girls are not the same. When they're in a fight with each other, that will last years. And it takes a whole lot of reconciliation to bring them back just to have a phone call. One of them refused to invite the other one to her wedding because that's what women do. Chaos is a good way to describe that. Drama is a good way to describe that. But masculinity is a different thing. When my boys get into an argument, I correct them with one word. 
And this goes back to the story power coaching that I do. Gentlemen is the only correction they need. Because for all of their life, I've raised them that there is a definition of a gentleman. He opens the door first. He walks through the door if it's a dangerous situation. He steps aside and lets her walk through the door if it's not. If you're going through that door and what's on the other side is an unknown, you go first. Because if there's any danger, you encounter it first. If you know you're going into a safe situation, into a restaurant, into a gym, into the church, open the door, let her go through. You step out of the way and let her go through. Otherwise, you go first, you take the hit. Those shouldn't be long-term decisions. Those should be habits by the time you're eight or 10 years old. If I'm going somewhere with my boys, my boys race me to open the door for mom. I have for 28 years opened the door for her. She will walk to the side of the corner and stop so that I can come because I consider it a privilege to open the door for her. But my boys will race me to do that. They will do it for the girls that they're dating. They will do it for strangers. They will race across the parking lot to open the door for a woman who's pushing a stroller by herself. It's the way they're raised. That's what gentlemen means. And when they start acting a fool and punching each other or pushing each other or cutting up in public and they're making a fool of themselves or risking hurting somebody, I will correct them by simply saying, gentlemen, it's not as much a scolding as a reminder that there are expectations for you and you're outside them right now. That verbal correction is that big, solid fence. We know where the line is, and you're getting really close. By the way, I didn't tell you that a fence is electric, but you'll figure it out really soon when you hit it. It's something that's come up, and I appreciate and respect your finality about it. We've talked about masculine energies and feminine energies, and really to just avoid the whole gender debate, because like you said, everybody, they're all flavors. It's all different, and, and some people are wired differently. The reason I bring that up is I've seen even in myself, moments where I'm not in my masculine energy and I'm doing the drama thing. I'm not being in my masculine, you know, and I have to remind myself, one of my favorite books that I just refound again in my, it was actually in my bathroom drawer, is King Warrior, Magician Lover. And it's a great book about the archetypes of manhood and how when you slip into the negative side of, of a particular energy, how that comes out. And I have to remind myself, I want to also encourage people that like, I know I've seen the negative side of the feminine energy come out in myself because of whatever. I just wanted to throw that to you. And I'd love to hear your kind of thoughts on navigating that kind of thing. I'd say the hardest thing, especially, and again, I don't mean to harp on this, but it is a framework that I've had to navigate. The only son of a single mom means I grew up in a whole lot of feminine energy, a whole lot of drama. I also grew up in a culture where drama is what got you the attention you wanted. Drama is what made the world stop and pay attention. It's what generated the emotional endearing behavior. It's what made people go, oh, or isn't that sweet? And the drama, sometimes just to get the attention, was created, not even real drama. That's a scary place to be because it's a psychosis all on its own. It is a mental illness. When you feel like your need for drama or your need for attention requires you to create non-existent drama in the lives of other people, that's a form of narcissism. And that look at me, put the attention on me, forget about you, forget about your feelings. I'll even blame you for something that I did. I'll project, I'll cast, I'll do whatever I need to do so that I can feel better about me so that I can get the attention. I used to joke with one of my daughters that she would walk into the room and she didn't care about the conversation. 
she would walk up and go, so anyway, and I'm telling you, she didn't care. We would be in a business conference. We'd be in the middle of a business negotiation. She would walk into the conversation and go, but anyway, and she would expect everybody to stop what they were doing and talk about her. And I pulled her aside one time and I said, here's what but anyway really means. Enough of that crap, more about me. This has been probably 15 years ago. And that part of her has dramatically changed. But the seasons of life that we go through, for some people, are later than others. I know grown women in their 40s and 50s that still have that same attitude. Enough of that crap. More about me. In their relationships, in their careers, in the way that they look at life, it's all about them. And so they will use drama to create that. When you see that in a guy, his ability to compartmentalize the energies to say, I'm on task for this, and then I'm going to move to the task for this. That's the way most men are wired to begin with. It's the natural state of man. When those things become so fluid that you can't move from one task to another, some would say it's multitasking. Women multitask very well. Men stare at the television and they're not thinking about anything else while they're doing it. There's some truth to that, but there's more truth to the fact that there's an intention of focus. Why? Well, if you think back to the Neanderthal days, you might be going a little far, but if you think back through the progression of man and his role to be a hunter, to be a gatherer, to be a provider, if you're not focused, you're dead. And if you're looking at that saber-toothed tiger and you're not thinking, what's his next move and what's mine, and you're instead thinking about, well, I wonder if she's painting new roses on the wall in the cave. You're a dead man. You're tiger dinner. So that focus is a natural thing in man. So it is when you're operating a weapon or a tool that could kill you. If you're not focused on what you're doing, if you don't have the ability to focus on that, you're going to be in trouble. Dr. Caroline Leaf is someone that I study a lot. She's a neuroscientist. She says what we call multitasking is really not what we think it is. In fact, multitasking is a myth. Instead, what you've done is create a hormonal milkshake in the brain that creates an instability that's unrecognizable by the rest of the body. So take for a moment, (coughs) let's say that day that you're having a really intense sales day. You made 10 phone calls when you need to make 100. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I had a fight with my wife before I walked out the door and I just can't concentrate on my job. So what happens? You pick up the phone and call your wife. You try to work things out. You go to lunch. You come back from lunch. You still haven't had this conversation with her to get these things nailed down. And now you have to get back on the phone to make your dials for the day. And so part of your brain is in focus mode. And all the chemicals that go along with that, the cortisol and the hormones that are necessary to be on your edge while you're focused in that conversation are constantly being interrupted by all of the negative responses to dopamine and norepinephrine in your brain that are saying, I'm in a stressful relationship. I'm in a stressful situation. And so fight or flight is going on in your heart, in your mind at the same time, one for the customer and one for your spouse. And that is a disaster. Now try to move from that to having a happy tone as you're closing a sale. And you sound like a psycho, not like somebody who's confident and genuine in your sales process. And if you've ever had the day that you're trying to make sales calls, but you're still in a fight with your spouse, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That multitasking emotionally is an absolute disaster on your day. When I write, I don't like to be interrupted by anything. Unfortunately, I have a dog who swears that if I'm in the house, she's supposed to be in my lap. And if I am sitting in my chair, she's supposed to be getting a ball thrown for her. 
and she will dive underneath my little desk and raise it up with her furry head to get between me and my iPad while I'm trying to write. And it makes me crazy. I'll lock her up or throw her outside. The worst is when my wife comes from the other room and starts talking to me, asking me questions before she gets there because I want to pay attention to her. But then I get interrupted and when I'm writing, I lose my train of thought. And that puts me on edge. And I'll tell her, if you see my fingers moving on the keyboard, pretend I'm not here until my fingers are no longer moving on the keyboard because I am not paying attention to you. And if you force me to pay attention to you, I'm going to be frustrated. I'm going to write horribly and respond negatively. So just a heads up, 28 years into our marriage, that's still a reality. People who don't take the time to look at that really make a mess of relationships. You talked about expectations of men. The expectations have risen for our emotional intelligence and our ability to deal, manage effectively whatever our emotions. And I think that it's a healthy evolution. I would hope that the amount of domestic violence is going down. I would hope that the amount of all those things that came with men's inability to deal with their emotions is going right in the right direction. But now men need the actual how-tos. It's not just, okay, you need to be better. Okay, well, how do we be better? And I love that these frameworks, these mindsets, and these structures are providing that. I want to hear about where people can connect with you. And I think you've got some things going on and a few ways that people can go deep with what it is that you talk about. My last question is, Jay, what does modern masculinity mean to you? I want to juxtapose that answer with a comment that you just made, because I think it's profound. Zig Ziglar, over the top. This book was written in the early 90s. On page 27, he gives you the action and benefits. And he says, action step number one, take a three by five card and start to develop the day before vacation approach to life by printing or typing these words on it. You ready for this? Because this is that EQ that you're talking about. Emotional quotient. I, state your name, am honest, intelligent, responsible, organized, goal setting, committed individual whose priorities are firmly in place. I am focused, disciplined, enthusiastic, a positive thinking, decisive, extra miler who is competent, energized, self-starting team player, determined to develop and use all of these leadership qualities in my personal, family, and business life. These are the qualities of a winner I was born to be. Okay. You realize that about 80% of the men in the world, if you just ask them to write those words on a piece of paper and read them every day, wouldn't get through the first line without saying, I feel like a fraud. Emotional intelligence is a powerful and important aspect, but our biggest challenge right now is that we're being asked to be emotionally intelligent enough to read the room of everybody in the room and then respond equivocally to their emotional state with no concern for our own. What I found instead to be more successful is that people who own their own story, people who can look you in the eye and tell you an authentic story about themselves, they build no like and trust in a heartbeat. When they tell you a true story, there's transparency. When they tell you a true story and it resonates with you, you're like, wow, we have a lot of common ground. And the result of those two things both being true is that you learn to trust them. Young men today have a real hard time with all three of those. They have a hard time with transparency. They have a hard time finding common ground, especially with the opposite sex. That's why so many online dating tools are all about the aspects that you choose to say, this is what I'm looking for in a person. Because having a relationship with them is hard, mainly because we've learned to not be transparent. Catfishing is way too easy. Filters are way too unreliable. How many times have you met somebody face-to-face -face and went, no, not the same person? If you're challenged to define yourself as honest, as caring, as competent, 
Can you look in the mirror honestly and say that it's true? So what I do with Story Power Coaching, and you can go to storypowercoaching.com to get started. There's a nice little assessment on there that'll give you five minutes to ask about the story that you tell yourself in the mirror, the story you tell to potential clients, the story you tell to potential dates. When you have the story of who you are and you're comfortable with it and you're transparent with it and you can build that trust through sharing your common ground, here's what also happens. You can walk into a room with the confidence to say, I can be me. And if nobody likes that, I'm okay with it. That is not the norm in our society today. The norm in our society is to modify ourselves until everyone else is happy, to change our gender, to change our identity, to change our vocation, to change our title, to change the platform of social media we spend time on, just to appease a certain group of people. And in the process of doing that, we have lost our identity altogether men and women. A lot of times people will hire me and say, I need to write a speech for XYZ project. And I'll say, that's great. Glad to help you with your speech to critique what you're working on, et cetera, et cetera. But I spend a whole lot more time developing the person worthy of holding the microphone than I do writing the speech. And for most people at the end of a six month journey with me, what they find is I'm a different person. Now, whether that makes them a phenomenal platform speaker or not, is usually a side thing. And the reason I say that is because many of them who've come to me saying, I just want to write the speech that sells, find that they're a whole lot more comfortable and profitable in the business they were already in. Striving to be on the stage was really a place to hide the who that they were and hope that their ability to perform was going to drive enough revenue to be okay with that. Same people that want to build a TikTok page and an OnlyFans page because, God forbid, they have to be engaged in a real relationship. But behind the camera, I can be whoever you want me to be. And out in the street, you won't even know who I am. And I'm okay with that because I don't know who I am. My coaching clients discover who they are when we start talking about those stories. And they have to tell a story that's honest, that's real. And then they go, I'm not even sure I believe that anymore. Hmm. Funny because you're still making decisions based on that reality. And it isn't real. It's simply not true. Can I share one story with you from a past client? It's very revealing if you got time. So I was having the Story Power Masterclass. And in the Story Power Masterclass, I use a demonstration where everybody comes to the front and they tell their story for two minutes. And then I retell the same story. Going through the line, we get to one of the last ladies near the end. As we're about to go to break, she gets up and tells her story. She sits down. I said, turn on your phone and record. You can record what I'm saying so that you can have a new way of telling your story in the future. She tells her story. I start telling her story. I changed one line dramatically. In the one line, she said, as I walked into the room, I just saw such hatred in that woman's eyes. When I told that line, I said, I walked into the room and there was just such hatred in the room. She came to me on the break and all of her makeup was gone. And she said, you changed one sentence in my story and it changed my life. I said, what do you mean? She said, I spent the last 39 years of my life trying to figure out why that woman hated me so much. But just changing the way you said the statement told me that the hate wasn't in her eyes. It wasn't her hatred. It just happened to be in the room. And now I have to ask the question, was that hate in me? Because if it's in me, then I can do something about it. I can fix it. But I've spent all this time hating her in return for her hate for me. And now I realize it may not have been there in the first place. We all do that to some extent. We have these stories in our head that we keep telling ourselves. And like you said of your three-year-old daughter, she has a way of viewing the world and sometimes it's not accurate. 
video games and cartoons feed all kinds of propaganda into the minds of our young people. Whether you want that to be true or not, it is. There is an agenda and there is a narrative. And that narrative doesn't always agree with our parenting skills or our parenting choices. Our core values are not being represented in cartoons, on TikTok, on social media. We know that because the suicide level has continued to go up. If our children knew that we loved them, they wouldn't be taking their lives. But instead, they believe the story that's being shoved down their throat, that their self-worth is based on their gender identity or their gender fluidity, on the grades that they have, the school they go to, the car they drive, the kind of clothes they wear, who they celebrate. And until we can get back into that story and encourage them to say, I am lovable, I am honest, I am trustworthy, I am competent, I am a hard worker, and tell that story in a way that they truly believe it, they will begin to live it. If you can tell that story and you find yourself to be a fraud, keep telling the story. The reticular activating system in the brain will begin to kick in. And every time you see yourself being dishonest, you'll challenge yourself and go, but I'm an honest person. Why would I do that? And at the same time, instead of waiting to the grand exit, the grand finale, you'll learn to celebrate every little time that you're honest. Every little time that your confidence rises up, you'll go, yes, I did it right. I won. If we could teach that to our three and four and five-year-olds, we'd have an entirely different world in one generation. As parents, as men, I think we failed to do that. If our wives knew that we loved them. I have my wife's key ring here because I drove her to work today. You'll see right here on her key ring, she has a little tag. It says hottie because I spent the first 25 years of my life addicted to pornography. The first 10 years of our marriage, I brought that into our marriage. I spent years telling people I didn't marry Cindy Crawford, Martha Stewart, or Betty Crocker. She can't cook, she can't clean it, she's not the hottest woman in the world, but I did pick the one who loved me. And I thought I was being phenomenally magnanimous in saying that. I was being a jerk. I was being a jerk. But now I address my wife every time I see her, it doesn't matter how long we've been apart from each other, when she walks in the room or I walk in the room, I say, hello, hottie, to remind her and to remind me that I find her to be the most special and sexually attractive woman in my life. The more I remind myself of that, the more I remind her of that, the more confident our relationship is. And sometimes it's those little things that don't sound like insults, but they sound like endearing that we need to build into our story and keep telling ourselves until we believe it. They do have to be in touch with reality, though. <laughs> you can't just make things up. Hi, pumpernickel. Hello, dinosaur. You got to have something solid. But the more often you say it, the more you'll believe it. And the more you believe it, the more true it will be. That's the power of story in your life. Go to storypowercoach.com. You'll find all the resources you need. We've got a brand new online course. It's about 27 videos, but it will walk you through the process of asking, what stories do I tell about my life and are they really important? And which ones are qualified for me to use, whether it's a networking event, a dating event, or speaking in front of a crowd, or just leading a team. The stories that I tell about me will tell them enough about me to know if they can trust me or not. And that means everything in the world of leadership. You squeezed in, Jay, more value in that last five minutes. We doubled it. We doubled up on the first hour in the last five minutes. We came back and thank you for saving that after the hour mark. It was fantastic. Maybe we're gonna have to come back and dive into more because this is the last five minutes. We're shattering in themselves. So go get connected. We connected on LinkedIn. So I would encourage you to get connected with Jay and take this audit. I think so much reality and so much realness in this conversation and so much to take away. So thank you guys for being a part of the Modern Masculinity family, for sticking with us through this. And we'll see you guys on the next one. Later, y'all.